talking about spying, surveillance, and civil rights today. Although the issues are serious, I think it would nonetheless be fun to set the stage with three little vignettes, all of which are pertinent to our discussion. First, I think I have to give a brief mention to William Alvin Lloyd. Lloyd was a con man, a bigamist, and a manager of a minstrel troupe, among other things. He claimed that in 1861, Abraham Lincoln hired him to work as Lincoln's personal secret agent in the South during the Civil War. According to Lloyd, Lincoln made Lloyd swear that this arrangement would remain a secret between just the two of them. He went to the South, was jailed for the bigamy, got out, worked as a steamboat guide, got shot by a guy he tried to blackmail, got jailed a couple other times, and somewhere in there, he claims, sent some intelligence dispatches to Lincoln. Lincoln gets assassinated. Lloyd nonetheless submits his bills to the government. He fabricated a contract and evidence, and he, he actually did get some money, though not all he asked for, and he went off. After he died, his estate sued for the rest of the money supposedly owed, and the case went to the Supreme Court. The resulting decision, Totten versus United States, could be said to establish uh, one prong, at least, of what is today known as the state secrets privilege. What happened, in short, is that the court said it could not even hear the case because the introduction of the evidence of the contract itself would imperil national security. Second, in the 1950s and 60s, our government did some very, very bad things. Among its other abuses of power, it engaged in a lot of warrantless surveillance and investigation of domestic groups it deemed subversive. Such subversive groups included anti-Vietnam war groups, the civil rights movement, including Martin Luther King Jr., environmentalist groups, and the American Indian movement. There was more, of course, but in any event, it all led to congressional investigations such as the Church Committee, which in turn led to the passage of the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act of 1978. Most of the targets of COINTELPRO, the pre-FISA surveillance program, were nonviolent and had no connection to a foreign government. FISA is supposed to stop that kind of abuse, yet still give the government a way to conduct real legitimate foreign intelligence surveillance inside the United States ex parte without a warrant and under a degree of court supervision. The FISA system has been controversial and it's been plagued with problems. And that brings me to the third set of events. Today, we'll be discussing a case in which the government spied on three Muslim men in Southern California. Our guest is going to lay out more of the details, but the main point is that the FBI used an informant to record the men and collect extensive information about them and their community. It gets worse, she'll explain. The men allege that this was done solely because of their religion. The plaintiffs sued, alleging, among other things, that the government agents involved in the spying violated the Constitution. The government invoked the state, se the state secrets privilege uh, to dismiss the case. The Ninth Circuit granted the men a potential narrow path to have their case heard under the procedures set forth in FISA. The case, FBI versus Fazaga, is now before the Supreme Court, which will hold oral argument on November 8th. So it's coming right up. This is the Tech Policy Podcast. 
I'm Corbin Barthold. Here to talk with me today about Fazaga and FISA and more is Liza Goitin. She is the co-director of the Brennan Center for Justice's Liberty and National Security Program. Liza, it's great to have you on. Thanks, Corbin. It's good to be with you. So a big part of this case um, is, of course, the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act. Uh, so we need to discuss FISA, uh, which is an interesting, if uh, terribly flawed system. But the dispute over how to read that statute in this case is pretty complicated. I, you and I will try to parse it out a little later. Um, and in any event, the, the plaintiffs have actually, I don't think it's unfair to say they've kind of switched it up. We'll, we'll talk about whether that's going to create problems for them. But they're telling the court um, as their lead argument, uh, justices, you know, you really don't need to get into FISA. We can win this case without you having to uh, dig into that. So I'm thinking maybe we could start uh, with just what are the facts of the case and um, how does the state secrets privilege play into it? And why do the plaintiffs think they can, uh, that the state secrets privilege doesn't apply and that, or that FISA doesn't apply and that, that they should win uh, by that route? Sure. This case involves uh, a 14 month campaign of surveillance of mosques and Islamic centers in Southern California conducted by the FBI um, <clears throat> from 2006 to 2007. According to one of the informants that the FBI used, who, who later parted ways with the FBI, the sole purpose of the surveillance was to spy on Muslim Americans because they were Muslim. Uh, it's not like they had reason to suspect you know, a particular congregant of criminal activity. And, and so they sent an informant to gather information about him. Uh, in fact, when this particular informant, Craig Montiel, started talking about um, committing violent acts as his FBI handlers had instructed him to do, the people who attended the mosques freaked out. Uh, and the mosque leaders called, um, you guessed it, the FBI. One of the mosques um, even got a restraining order against him. The FBI surveillance involved electronic surveillance in the form of audio and video recordings of mosque leaders and attendees that were made without the consent of anyone who was recorded. Um, some of these recording devices, according to Montiel, were placed in people's homes and businesses, as well as um, you know, their places of worship. This type of surveillance requires basically a warrant from the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Court, but the FBI told Montiel that they didn't get a warrant. The plaintiffs in this case, who, who were members of a couple of these Islamic centers, alleged that the FBI's actions constituted illegal, illegal searches and surveillance under FISA and the Fourth Amendment, and religious discrimination under the First Amendment and various statutes. The government moved to dismiss the religious discrimination claims on state secrets grounds involving uh, the so-called Reynolds version of the state secrets privilege. Um, and this is um, a common law evidentiary privilege that allows courts to exclude certain evidence if the government persuades the court that, that the disclosure of this evidence would harm national security. Now, the plaintiffs in the case were very clear that they could prove discrimination without using any privileged evidence, using only evidence that, um, that they already had that was already in the public domain. But the government argued that it would need privileged information to mount a defense. The district court agreed with this and not only dismissed the religious discrimination claims, but also the illegal search claims, even though the government hadn't even asked 
to dismiss those claims. The Ninth Circuit reversed um, and it held, it didn't really address whether the state secrets privilege was appropriate or inappropriate, but it held that the privilege is displaced by a provision of FISA that tells courts exactly how they should handle sensitive information in litigation that involves electronic surveillance. And I, I can go into that um, a bit later on. Uh, but the plaintiff's first argument before the court, and obviously it's the government that, that petitioned for cert here, so, so the plaintiffs are the respondents, um, is that the court doesn't even need to reach the question of whether FISA displaces the state secret's privilege because the privilege wouldn't justify dismissal of the case in any event. As the plaintiffs pointed out, the Reynolds version of the privilege is an evidentiary privilege, not a justiciability bar, like the Totten case that you were talking about. If the evidence is privileged, it drops out of the case, period. That might end up resulting in dismissal indirectly if the plaintiff needed the evidence to make out its case, but it should never result in dismissal at the pleading stage, and certainly not where the plaintiffs um, are going to proceed without any privileged evidence. The Fourth and Ninth Circuits, unfortunately, have adopted um, a distorted reading of the state secrets privilege in which courts are entitled to dismiss cases at the pleading stage if the government convinces the court of, of one of three things. Either the plaintiff will need privileged evidence to prove their case, the government will need privileged evidence to mount a defense, or the privileged and non-privileged evidence is uh, inexplicably intertwined. And this is basically a, a heads we win, tails we lose approach. No, heads we win, tails you lose approach is what I meant to say. Um, so the plaintiff has a meritorious claim, but can't prove it without privilege, privilege evidence, you know, oh, well, too bad for the plaintiff. If the government has a meritorious defense, but can't prove it without privilege evidence, oh, well, too bad for the plaintiff, right? So it's either way, it's the plaintiff who bears the costs of, of the evidence being excluded. And that's just not the way exclusion of evidence usually works. The case goes on without the excluded evidence and the party that needed the evidence is disadvantaged. Um, but that is not the approach that's been taken by the, by the fourth and ninth circuits. So that's the, that is really the first issue that, that is on appeal in this case. Great, great. So I introduced uh, Totten at the outset in part because it, just the facts of that case are so wild. Um, and it basically is the foundation. You mentioned Reynolds as, as this one prong of the state secrets privilege and Totten is the other. And I think it's fair to say that to prevail on that argument, the plaintiffs need Totten to be construed as applying only to um, some narrow, I mean, let's call it um, contracts with the government to spy, so somewhere in that realm. It's basically so that you need to in some way have sort of uh, taken on the risk that this could happen to you in court. You, you, was, you, know, you did something with the government at your peril. Um, and I think it's fair to say, as you just pointed out, that there's lower court decisions that do not uh, construe it that way, that, that it's broader. And so I am um, very sympathetic to the logic that the plaintiffs have brought up um, to try to, to win by basically, uh, let's go so far as to say like correct the state secrets privilege. Um, could you elaborate a bit on their logic and then explain um, whether you think it's got a good chance with the court? I mean, the answer can be no, but um, go ahead. Yeah, so, as you pointed out, the plaintiffs argue in their brief that the government's view of the privilege conflates the Reynolds version and the Totten version. Um, and as you were saying, uh, the Totten case um, was one in which, um, 
you know, there's a, a, a supposed government spy, someone who claimed to be a government spy was trying to sue, or his estate was trying to sue over his contract. Um, and the Supreme Court held that when you enter into a covert espionage contract with the government, you assume the risk that the government might violate the contract and you won't have any recourse because the contract itself is a state, state secret and therefore the entire subject matter of the litigation is a state secret. So Totten is a judici uh, justiciability bar, um, not an evidentiary privilege, and it requires dismissal of the case. Now, the Supreme Court did in another case in 2011, um, clarified that these versions of the privilege, Totten and Reynolds, are distinct and that they work differently and suggested that the, the Reynolds version is not one that, that leads to dismissal of the case. I, I, the government's argument um, does, actually does not rely on saying that Totten applies beyond um, state secrets, I'm sorry, beyond espionage contracts, because the government isn't trying to apply Totten. What the government is saying is that even under the evidentiary privilege, basically the government is saying Totten applies whenever the subject matter of the case is a state secret and that that is not limited to espionage contracts. Whether you accept that or do not accept that, it doesn't really matter here because the government is not say, claiming that the subject matter of this litigation or cannot plausibly claim anyway, that the subject matter of this litigation is a state secret because the FBI has admitted to this surveillance in Southern California. So it, 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 there's no way to say that the subject matter of this litigation is a state secret. So even under the broadest reading of Totten, Totten wouldn't apply here. The question is really whether the evidentiary privilege itself allows the court to do anything other than exclude the evidence, whether it allows the court to make a prediction without looking at the evidence that the plaintiff might need the evidence or to make a prediction without looking at it. Um, well, that's sort of the predictive aspect of it. And whether it allows the court to dismiss the case on the grounds that the defendant would need that evidence, which is, again, not how evidentiary privileges usually apply. Um, so that, that is really the question. And you know, in terms of how the court will rule on this, I'm nervous just because the court granted cert. That's why I'm nervous, because there have been plenty of cases in which the government prevailed in a state secrets claim and the plaintiffs um, petitioned for cert and the court denied the petition. And the fact that the court is about to hear, I just heard and will now hear, is hearing in this term, two different state secrets cases, and they're both cases in which the government lost. To me, that isn't a great sign. So I'm nervous for that reason. But on the law, I certainly think that the plaintiffs have the better argument. Well, I really like your framing of um, the, the state secrets privilege at its broadest expanse, um, including in a case like Totten um, and, and in Reynolds, I suppose you could get into that, um, is, is asking the court to make a prediction without really being fully informed. And I kind of see just as an abstract matter, I think both sides on the state secrets privilege, there is a logic to what they're saying. You have one side saying, I, I can't even prove my case. That's ridiculous. I, um, you know, I, I've had a right violated. I should get to go into court. You have the government saying, well, if people can come into court and um, basically try to leverage secret information that's very delicate, we might have to be forced to settle cases that we would not otherwise settle because we would win and, and 
the problem that I have is that while both of those arguments make sense to me very much in the abstract, the government has such a long history of basically not behaving in a way that lets it sort of stand on that logic, if that makes sense. I mean, just I, we could have a whole podcast on that, but you know, just use one example. They're in a terrible habit of overclassifying. I know that that's a, up the river from state secrets privilege, and it's not quite the same, but it it just anytime the government is let uh, given the ability to do this stuff ex parte, there almost always ends up being abuses, um, which leads me into you know, could the court just say, look? we trust federal judges, let's start flowing a lot more of this into ex parte um, review, let's let the judges look at it, let's make the government actually show its hand. And you know, we can put in procedures to make sure that it is uh, protected. And, uh, you know, to the extent you don't like that government, well, maybe you uh, shouldn't have done MK Ultra or whatever. Anyway, yeah, yeah, I mean, absolutely, that that is not only an option, it's, it's what should be done. And in the original case that established the Reynolds version of the privilege, which of course is called Reynolds, <laughs> um, the Supreme Court made clear that it is the court's determination ultimately whether the state secrets privilege applies and that the court can, uh, in circumstances where it's necessary, look at the evidence itself to make that determination. I would argue that that's pretty much always necessary given what you were mentioning in terms of the government's history of, of um, misusing. Uh, classification, state secrets, national security claims. Reynolds itself is an example of that because in Reynolds, the plaintiffs were widows of uh, uh, people who had been killed when um, when an, a plane crashed, an Air Force plane crashed, and uh, the widows sought access to the to the Air Force's accident report. And uh, the government claimed that it was full of state secrets, that um, it was there was it was a secret experimental mission and there was experimental equipment on the plane that could not be revealed. And there was just no way to reveal the report without tremendous harm to the national security. Uh, the the Supreme Court said, look, you don't even need to look at the report in this instance. The government has said all it needs to say and uh, state secrets applies and, and this, you know, they can't they can't use this report. You didn't they didn't dismiss the case, but the plaintiffs really couldn't prevail without without the report. Um, and then after it was all over, you know, after a while, eventually the accident report was released and uh, it was it made absolutely clear that um, the cause of the crash was was negligence on the part of the Air Force. And that was really the defining feature of the report to the extent there was any sensitive information in the report, which I think is arguable, it easily could have been redacted. And if the court had looked, and this is the point, if the court had looked at that report, the judge had looked at the report, the judge would have said, oh, we can just redact this, this, and that, and release it to the plaintiffs, and the plaintiffs would have won their case. So I think it's very important that courts exercise the authority that they absolutely have to insist on seeing the evidence in order to make a determination of, of whether it truly is privileged or not. One thing in uh, private practice I always found difficult, it can be very hard to be the appellee in a case. Um, statistically, most appeals get affirmed at the middle level of the court. Um, but then most petitions to the Supreme Court, I think, uh, you know, the Supreme Court tends to take cases where it tends, as you mentioned, 
um, not to affirm, but to um, resolve a dispute often on the, uh, on the side against um, the ruling below. And it's difficult because in the middle court, it makes kind of sense that you um, get one brief and the appellant gets the first word and the last word because chances are you're going to win. Um, the Supreme Court, it's just, it's hard. You get your one word in and you're kind of on the back foot actually on that court. Um, and I bring this up because it's, I, I look at this case and I look at the plaintiffs and I feel like just strategically they were put in a difficult position because they were given a Ninth Circuit opinion. And we can get into the details of FISA. I, I think, you know, it, it, you can argue the statutory point both ways. And then you get, you know, your one brief. Uh, so you choose to lead with a, a, your strong state secrets argument, but then it kind of sends a signal, whether you want to or not, that like you're, you're downgrading the argument on which you won on below, which is hard. Um, so, and, and then the other side in their reply brief claims, well, that wasn't in the question presented, which uh, is tough because you don't get like a sir reply. And frankly, what were you supposed to petition for cert on your victory? Like what, what were you supposed to do? Um, I'm not even sure there's a question coming out of that. I, I think it just, it, 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 being the respondent can be, put you in a very difficult position in the Supreme Court. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's really interesting. I mean, I, you know, I was a litigator at one point and I litigated at the district court level. Uh, my own exposure to appellate litigation is limited and it was when my cases went up on appeal and I, and I would help with the appeals and it was, it, it's a very different set of strategies and approaches on, on appeal. Um, it, it, which was even back then was just fascinating to me to watch. Um, you know, I, I, and it's true that, that to start with an argument um, that isn't really the argument you won on, right, is, is, is a little strange and awkward. On the other hand, if the point is, look, you don't even have to reach this question that really is sort of a threshold argument that kind of has to go first. Sure, sure. It's like it's yeah. almost like raising a jurisdictional question out front, which is of yeah. course how you do I, that. And I think and I think it's smart to to present both bases on which they could prevail in this case. I mean, I think they need to do that, right? And so, um, and I, you know, I think they did a great job just having. Oh yeah, no, I think it's a, a great brief. I am was more expressing how. Um, I, I thought they did a great job strategically being in a tough spot. Um, yeah, yeah. But anyway, it's interesting. It's really interesting. It's it's a it's a whole uh, you know you, there's the arguments that you see that are made on paper, and then there's the whole backstory of the strategy and how the parties figure out what they're going to argue, and um, if there's so much more that meets the eye when you read the briefs on all of that. Yes. Well, having prove, proven my willingness to get into the weeds on uh, fine points of appellate litigation on the Tech Policy Podcast, you, sh you now should feel no fear when I say, please feel free to get in the weeds on the statutory FISA question in the case. <laughs> so if you could just, you know, briefly remind our listeners, uh, you know, in broad brushstroke outline, how FISA works, and then, you know, what, what's the dispute here? Sure. FISA, as you mentioned, was passed in 1978 at a time when foreign intelligence surveillance was not subject to any statutory regime. It was essentially happening under purely executive authority. And the Church Committee <clears throat> had uncovered a wide range of intelligence abuses, as you discussed, by the CIA, the NSA, the FBI, uh, in which these agencies were spying on civil rights activists and anti-war protesters under the guise of, of seeking foreign intelligence. Um, so Congress realized that it, that it not only needed to regulate 
foreign intelligence surveillance, but it needed to do so comprehensively without leaving any room for the government to conduct foreign intelligence surveillance inside the United States um, outside of the statutory framework. Uh, so the law started out primarily as a, as a warrant mechanism that established a special court, um, the FISA court, which sits in DC and is populated by um, sitting federal judges who serve seven year terms. Um, and if the court wanted to conduct electronic surveillance um, or a physical search inside the US, it would apply to the FISA court. And it had to show probable cause that the target of the surveillance was a foreign power or an agent of a foreign power. And that whether the target was uh, a foreigner uh, overseas or uh, a, a US person, as, as, as long as um, the electronic surveillance was happening inside the United States and electronic surveillance is defined in the statute in such a way that it involves essentially um, US persons being sort of caught up in the surveillance. Uh, then the target had to, had to be shown to be a, a foreign agent or, or, I'm sorry, a foreign power or an agent of a foreign power. Um, and for a U.S. person, being an agent of a foreign power is defined in the statute in such a way that that person is basically committing a crime, almost necessarily, because they're involved in, in espionage um, uh, or committing fraud or, or the like. Um, so it's really similar to a warrant proceeding um, and in criminal law. And like a criminal warrant, um, it took place uh, ex parte and, and uh, in camera in the, in the sense that uh, the other party, the target of the surveillance was not there, is not there, is not represented to make arguments to the court. Um, and, and obviously that's the way it works um, in criminal proceedings as well. When you're getting a search warrant to search somebody's house, you don't have them there saying, no, this person shouldn't, shouldn't search my house. But there is one big difference, which I think is very important to emphasize, which is when you're talking about a criminal case, the whole purpose of the investigation is ultimately to bring a prosecution. And when that prosecution is brought at that point, the, the defendant will have a chance to challenge the search. And so there will, at some point, if the investigation is successful, be some adversarial testing of, this, of the warrant. Um, that is not the case in foreign intelligence investigations, which very, very rarely result in criminal prosecution. That's not the point of them. So this sort of secretive proceeding happens uh, with the government fairly safe in the knowledge that there will never be an adversarial testing. Of, of their application for a warrant. And that really kind of changes things in, in a dramatic way. Um, also, after 9-11, the role of the FISA court expanded significantly so that instead of just uh, reviewing individual applications for surveillance and approving them, the court became involved in approving entire programs of surveillance, broad programs in which the court was not approving individual targets of surveillance at all didn't even know who the targets were, but were approving the contours of the program, the rules under which the program operated to see whether they were constitutional, whether they violated any statutes. And that really is not a function that is ever performed outside of the context of FISA in secret and without any sort of adversarial testing. So that was another pretty big shift and something, something unique about the FISA system. Excellent. And well, and I'll interject and just note, we um, 
Brennan Center filed an amicus brief in this case and were generous enough to let Tech Freedom join that brief. And it gets into some of this uh, post 9-11 history and it's an excellent brief. And uh, thank you for having us on. Oh, thank um, you. We were very happy to have you on. Uh, but then, so excellent. And then this dispute um, connects directly to um, section 1806 of FISA. And um, I, I think the, uh, this is the, the most nutshell version I can put it, but then it will quickly spin into Arcana. I mean, it, it basically the question is, you know, does this procedure get used as a defensive mechanism by a party defending uh, itself from having the government uh, bring this evidence in, or can it be used more broadly than that? But uh, there's more to it. So please elaborate. Yeah, no, that's, you basically captured it. I mean, the, this provision of FISA, 1806F, uh, essentially instructs courts on how to handle state secrets. Um, and it basically says that whenever the government notifies the court that it's planning to use evidence derived from electronic surveillance, uh, or whenever a non-government party, the other party, moves to suppress that evidence, or in a third category of cases that I'll get into in a minute, then if the attorney general files an affidavit saying that disclosure of the evidence would harm national security, the court must review the evidence ex parte and in camera and determine whether the surveillance was lawful. It's not optional. Now, the third category of cases is, uh, and I'm going to quote, it's whenever any motion or request is made by an aggrieved person, and an aggrieved person is basically a person who believes they were subject to surveillance, pursuant to any other statute or any other rule of the United States or any state before any court or other authority of the United States or any state to discover or obtain applications or orders or other materials relating to electronic surveillance or to discover, obtain, or suppress evidence or information obtained or derived from electronic surveillance. So that is this other category. And I wanted to recite the whole thing to give you a sense of how broad and all-inclusive it is. I mean, Congress could not have thrown in any more, any this, any that, whenever this. So it, it, is, it is sweeping. Um, and yet the government's argument in this case is that this set of procedures applies only when the government wants to introduce evidence against a defendant or when the defendant makes a procedural motion to suppress evidence. And as you can tell from what I just said, that's not in the text, that limitation. The, 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 the text is pretty much without limitation. So the government is relying on a series of canons of statutory interpretation, some of which are, are you know, when the government says, well, why would they have said this when in this other section they said this? Yeah, I mean, some of them actually raise questions. Congress doesn't always draft things uh, as well as it should. And so certainly if there was any ambiguity in the text, I think some of the government's arguments would, would have some, uh, some force. Uh, but as the plaintiffs have pointed out, these canons apply only when there's some kind of ambiguity in the text. And this text is just so clear that it encompasses sort of anything and everything so that even if the government were correct, that, that reading it that way would have some perverse results as, as it argues, uh, or, or isn't, uh, doesn't sort of mesh well with text and other parts of the, of the law. Um, you know, the, the, the truth is that what's written is what's written and that's what governs um, regardless of, of, you know, what any given party might think about how sensible the impact of that might be. 
Um, and so, so it's really a non-textual argument versus a, a textual argument in this case. There are also some, some very important, I should say, non-textual reasons uh, for the plaintiff's interpretation as well. And the most powerful of those is probably if the government's interpretation is correct, then there is essentially no civil litigation that can ever happen because electronic surveillance under FISA by definition is classified. And so by definition, the government will always uh, be able to raise, well, at least will always raise <laughs> a state secrets um, privilege claim. And uh, if, if, if they can do that and the government and the courts don't have to actually look at the evidence and decide whether the privilege applies and make a ruling on the lawfulness of the surveillance, then the civil litigation remedy that is explicitly included in FISA will be essentially meaningless. And this whole comprehensive scheme to regulate foreign intelligence surveillance will fall apart because there will be no way to enforce it judicially. So I think that's a very powerful argument. The government has also made another argument that the plaintiff's plain language construction of the statute would raise constitutional issues. And so the government is argue, arguing that the state secrets privilege has a constitutional basis. Um, the Supreme Court has uh, referred to constitutional undertones or overtones, I believe it is, in the state secrets privilege, um, but certainly has, has not held ever that the president has an artic article two right to uh, prohibit judges from, from looking at uh, privileged information. Um, and more to the point, this is a common law evidentiary privilege fundamentally, and it is well established that Congress can displace common law evidentiary privileges. Um, to the extent there are constitutional overtones here, Congress can still regulate activities of the president that are undertaken under the president's Article II authority, as long as Congress also has some authority in that area. So it's really only if the president has exclusive authority over something that Congress can't regulate it. And there's no question that Congress has authority over uh, foreign intelligence surveillance that affects Americans. Right. Um, I was gonna say FISA itself is evidence of that. Um, although hasn't there, there've been sort of individual memos in the executive or whatever that said rah, 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 FISA is like unconstitutional, but, um, but FISA itself is clearly evidence of that. Sure. Um, there's all, there's many statutes that are evidence of that. I mean, Congress and the president share power over national security issues. Just mm -hmm. the executive branch would like us all to believe. Um, yeah, starting with the ability to, to, uh, to raise armies and declare war. Um, That's a good one. Anyway, well, great rundown of the statute. I mean, uh, my take, there are other actually routes the plaintiffs can win, but I, I think you um, landed right on the strongest one, which is um, motion or request for that information. And um, I believe the plaintiff's hook here is in their, um, their ad damnum in their complaint, their, their, their demand for relief in their complaint is what they're using as the request. And my understanding of it, or the, or the way I see it, I should say, is the plaintiffs are standing on the strong ground there because a request, that's, a, that's an open-ended term. And then it's kind of the government that's in the position of trying to try to push them off that perch um, now, but then to follow up and say that the government is not completely without um, arguments to try to do that. I mean, they point to the fact that there's not really a good, um, like a fleshed out remedy structure 
uh, in FISA itself, and that's a signal. And, you know, I actually do kind of, if you read the thing through, I think there, I, I, maybe this is just me, there's a feel overall that maybe there's something to the government's request, but, or the government's reading, but we just had uh, the Bostock decision. We are in this era of sort of um, really uh, rigid uh, textualism. And if that's the method, then I think the plaintiffs are in uh, the driver's seat here. Yeah, and I'll say that it's not just the prayer for relief where they're they are requesting return of these recordings, and and that is you know seeking a motion to obtain this this uh, surveillance derived information, uh, but it also that the government is uh, has notified the court that it would it's using it plans to use privileged information in two ways. First of all, it is using privileged information right now to try to obtain dismissal of the case. It has submitted classified information to support its claim of the state secret privilege, but not just to support its claim of privilege. If it were only that, it might be different, but to go beyond that and try to obtain dismissal of the case, to try to win the case based on that, that evidence. And so they are using uh, this information for that purpose. And that is one of the explicit bases, or one of the explicit triggers for this 1806F procedure. Um, and also down the line, if the case were to go forward, they would be, uh, they've said that they would need to use um, this information, this evidence uh, in their own defense. So that's a second way in which it would come up. So I think there are several ways in which this particular litigation triggers or would trigger uh, the provisions in FISA. Yeah, yeah. So as I, as I uh, um, said, multiple avenues, and I, I think we're on the same page. That's one of the other ones. And so it's one of those situations where once you get into the statutory weeds, uh, reversing what I said earlier about the plaintiffs being in a tough spot, you know, they are in the position of having multiple ways to win and the government needing to knock all of them down in order to prevail. Um, yeah. Yep. So it's uh, spectacular. Uh, I actually feel like we managed to flesh out a, a, a very arcane statutory argument uh, decently well for, for podcast form. So thank you. Um, and uh, Liza, could you elaborate on what is in Brennan Center's uh, brief? You know, I really enjoyed it and I think it, it warrants some attention both for the justices and on the podcast. The argument in the brief is that the government's view of the state secrets privilege would effectively take civil litigation off the table as a way to challenge unlawful surveillance. And that this is extremely problematic because the other two ways of obtaining judicial review under FISA are completely dysfunctional. They simply don't work. Uh, the first of those other ways is through the FISC itself, the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Court, that when the government applies for a warrant under FISA, under Title I, to, um, to conduct surveillance of an American target, um, it has to, the, the FISA court has to find probable cause and has to, has to uh, make that decision. Um, so as I mentioned before, this proceeding is non-adversarial. It happens ex parte in camera. Um, and even though that's the same set of circumstances that happens in an ordinary criminal cases, as I mentioned, it's different in this case because there is almost certainly not going to be adversarial testing down the line because it's very unlikely that there will be a criminal prosecution. And possibly for that reason, although who knows, um, the non-adversarial system in FISA works extremely badly in that the government frequently provides 
wrong information to the FISA court. And we have seen that over and over again. We had known for a long time that the government um, fairly routinely misled the court on programmatic surveillance. The things like, uh, you know, the, the uh, bulk collection of Americans' phone records, right? That was, that was one case. <clears throat> or uh, the, the, the collection, the upstream collection where the government essentially sort of siphons communications off the internet backbone. Um, in these cases, we had seen FISA court opinions that talked about the many, many times that the government misled the court and to the point that the court actually referred to this as an institutional lack of candor. So we knew that, but then more recently over the last couple of years, um, the inspector general of the Department of Justice turned his attention to these Title I applications. That's the applications for individual uh, warrants and electronic surveillance cases. And basically to make a long story short, found that these applications are routinely riddled with errors and omissions. He looked at 29 applications for warrants under Title I, applications to the FISA court, and found more than 200 errors in these, in these 29 applications. So this is not a system that is working well in terms of the court making a, an informed decision on applications for, for surveillance. And the court can't serve as a check against unlawful surveillance if it isn't given the facts of what's actually happening. <clears throat> the other way that, that unlawful electronic surveillance uh, can come to the court's attention is through through criminal cases. So there's a requirement in FISA um, that if the government is going to use evidence that is obtained or derived from FISA surveillance, it has to notify uh, the defendant. Um, but as I've said before, criminal cases are very, very rare in foreign intelligence uh, surveillance and in, in foreign intelligence investigations. And so it is only a tiny fraction of, of the investigations that the government undertakes using FISA that will ever end up in a criminal prosecution. So it's not a very effective mechanism in that way. It's also not so effective because the government has found ways to evade this notice requirement so that rather than actually telling the defendants that it is using evidence that was obtained from FISA surveillance, uh, it will sometimes reconstruct that same evidence using other authorities and use this uh, kind of parallel construction as it's called to evade the notice requirements. And, and that's been documented. That was, that was a major problem um, in the past and, and looks like it's probably still a problem today given how few notices are actually um, provided. Um, and then finally, even when the defendants are notified, um, they generally are not allowed to see the, the information, the application to conduct surveillance. And so they're not, they're trying to, to address the surveillance with one hand tied behind their backs. So these mechanisms that exist for judicial surveillance outside the civil litigation, uh, sorry, these mechanisms that exist for, for judicial review outside of civil litigation um, just aren't working. They're simply not working. And so if uh, the government's interpretation of the state secrets privilege prevails and civil litigation essentially come, comes off the table as well, there will be no effective mechanisms for judicial review of surveillance under FISA. And that is exactly the opposite of what Congress intended with that law. Do you have thoughts on the outcome of this case? And then moving forward, um, do you have thoughts on FISA in general? Um, you know, what would, 
what do you think is wrong with FISA? What would a well-designed FISA look like? Or, um, or is it simply the case that all domestic surveillance should proceed through, uh, you know, a criminal law rubric? It's a great question. I do think it would be my preference that foreign intelligence surveillance that targets Americans should, or, and when I say Americans, what I mean is Americans, legal permanent residents, or other people inside this country. Um, that that should proceed using the criminal framework. And um, I'll go back to what I said earlier, which is, at least in theory, under the terms of FISA, in order to get a warrant to conduct surveillance of a U.S. person, where that person is a target, the the government basically has to show probable cause of criminal activity. There's very little daylight between the the foreign power agent, between the agent of a foreign power standard in FISA and, and, and uh, evidence of, of a crime, criminal activity. And so essentially they, they have to prove the same, prove a crime anyway. And why not require them to do that in front of ordinary courts? And I say that because I, I think the reasons for having a special court in the beginning, um, I mean, some of it had to do with keeping secrets. Um, the judiciary has been excellent at keeping secrets, probably better than either of the other two branches. And that's not, and, and even the FISA court itself is a testament to that, has shown, you know, we haven't seen leaks coming out of the FISA court, has shown that this information can be handled responsibly by the courts. I think there was also a perception that having a single court hear all of these cases um, would ensure that the court developed the necessary expertise. Um, and also maybe to some extent that if, if, uh, by by virtue of becoming well versed in these issues, um, would be in a good position to serve as a as a check on the executive branch. Uh, that has not worked out, and in fact, the, we've seen the opposite dynamic, where the fact that uh, these judges and these attorneys uh, in the Department of Justice are repeat players and are constantly in contact with each other, um, that they. <sighs> The FISA court has developed a sense of sort of being in it with the government. And I'm not going to say that the FISA court has been a rubber stamp because I, I think that probably goes too far. But I will say that the court very clearly has a, an approach and an attitude of getting to yes and really does anything it needs to do to get to a position where it can approve what the government wants to do. And I think that that is because of and not in spite of the fact that the court has worked on these issues for so long with the same folks at the Department of Justice over and over and over again. So I think it would actually be helpful to have judges who are not in it with the government um, constantly day in and day out. And I think it would be, I'm not concerned about the expertise issue. Uh, we ask courts to rule on all kinds of incredibly complicated cases all the time that involve complicated questions of science. For example, in many torts claims, you can have complicated questions of you know, chemical spills or whatever, causation. There, there are so many uh, complicated issues that we trust courts with every day. Um, and national security, there's nothing magic about it. Uh, if courts can appoint special masters if they need to, to, to have a better understanding of some of the factual issues involved, if those are proved challenging to the courts. Um, but there's no reason to, to, to believe that, that a federal judge lacks expertise to rule on national security issues if he 
sits off of the FISA court bench, but then by virtue of coming onto the bench, suddenly has that ability and that expertise. So I certainly felt that way when we got to see a lot of judicial treatment um, of the CRT process in Guantanamo. And, um, you know, like early on when this all happened, there's this whole trajectory that's a whole other podcast. But, you know, the government would say, oh, well, the mosaic theory, you know, evidence, well, you don't understand the full picture of the evidence. Like, well, that's any, any case has a mosaic of evidence that you're putting together. Like, I don't understand why courts can't just look at everything that you know and make an assessment. Um, and I've uh, not that I've endorsed every ruling, but it's been clear that the courts can look at the evidence in these cases and make a judgment for themselves as well as anyone else can. Yeah, I would agree with that. I, the, the argument you sometimes hear against disposing of the FISA court in cases that target Americans and, and, and going with ordinary criminal courts is that, um, as I said, the FISA court was meant to essentially uh, serve as a, as a check on the executive branch, which felt that it had the authority under um, Article Two, essentially, to conduct foreign intelligence surveillance <clears throat> without any sort of judicial oversight. And a lot of people who work on these issues are concerned that if you got, got rid of the FISA court, um, rather than apply for warrants through the criminal system, the government would go back to conducting foreign intelligence surveillance secretly under executive authority without any judicial approval at all. And, and so the risk is that, that they, they essentially would, if Congress said, said okay, going forward, if you're conducting foreign intelligence surveillance against Americans, you actually need to go to, uh, to a criminal court and, or to a court, or to an ordinary Article III court and, and get a warrant in those cases, that there would be a secret OLC opinion somewhere saying, ah, no, we don't. We'll just go back to our executive authority and we'll conduct foreign intelligence surveillance of Americans that way. And sure, you know, that could happen, but we can't be held hostage to the possibility that the government might break the law. And frankly, there may be a secret, I mean, there were not so secret uh, anymore OLC opinions after 9-11 saying, yeah, Congress told us we had to go to the FISA court, but we don't have to for these things because we have innate inherent Article II authority. So having the FISA court is not a guarantee that the executive branch won't uh, ignore its obligations and fall back on surveillance under executive authority. Um, so I don't see that as a very compelling argument to keep the FISA court in place. I uh, hate to even bring this up, but the whole time you were talking about that, I had that uh, Trump line. They told me I have this article two that lets me do anything I want. Yeah. Um, well, in closing, in closing out, uh, just uh, tie, let's tie it back to Fazaga uh, briefly, just to, you know, in terms of, you don't have to look into a crystal ball and predict the outcome, but um, maybe one thing that would be interesting, you know, how, how would you like to see this case come out uh, in, in what, what could happen in this case that would be movement towards some of those uh, remedies that you were discussing earlier? I'm thinking because it wouldn't make sense for the court essentially to rule, in a ruling that I liked, it wouldn't make sense for the court to rule on both the state secrets and the, the FISA 18-6F <laughs> question, right? So sure. in a, I liked it would, be, it would be on one or the other. But of course, what I would love to see in my ideal world would be um, a ruling on both issues and, uh, and a, a statement of what to me feels obvious, which is that an evidentiary privilege 
does not permit the dismissal of a case simply because um, one party and always the same party would be disadvantaged by the exclusion of evidence, that that is not what evidentiary privileges are and that uh, Reynolds is an evidentiary privilege. I would love to see that reaffirmed. But of course, I would also love to see something that said, look, Congress meant what it said in FISA. Courts can review challenges to unlawful surveillance under FISA. They can review civil challenges to that kind of surveillance. And to do that, Congress provided a mechanism where the courts could look at the evidence, even if disclosure of the evidence would harm national security. So I'd love to see that uh, decision too. I, I know we're not going to see both of those and we may very well not see either of them, but in, you know, in my, in my fever dreams, that's what I see. Liza, thank you so much for your time. And thank you for letting Tech Freedom join Brennan Center's brief in the case. Um, again, oral argument is November 8th. But by the time this episode comes out, that should be very close. So everyone uh, do tune in and check it out. I think it will be an interesting argument. I have even less of an idea of what the justices will do than I normally do, which is always very little. So um, it's a great case. Um, and I'll also mention very briefly, it's not even the only case in this area this term. There's the Zubeda case, which maybe I'll have to do some separate episode on because it's also interesting. Um, that gets squarely into all of the Guantanamo history and, and all that stuff instead of sort of the um, domestic surveillance, which is a little more of the tech policy podcast um, um, bailiwick. But uh, these issues are so interesting, I may not be able to help myself. Anyway, Liza, one more time. Thank you so much. Thanks, Corbin. This was fun. I'm Corbin Barthold, Internet Policy Counsel at Tech Freedom. Until next time. The Tech Policy Podcast is produced and distributed by Tech Freedom, a nonpartisan, nonprofit think tank in Washington, D.C. To learn more about our work, make a tax-deductible donation, or find other episodes, find us online at techfreedom.org.